T-minus 25 seconds. 20 seconds and counting. T-minus 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9. Ignition sequence start. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Tower cleared. Here we got a roll program. And as Apollo 11 does its roll program, this podcast now does its roll program. The tape is rolling. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. My name is Grant Cameron, and you're listening to the Paranormal Good evening. UFO Consciousness Podcast. The Cameron Files. Thank this you for taking time from your life my take to be here. On the Area 51 story. Just to give a little bit of review on parts one and two, for those people who didn't hear it. The way I see the Area 51 story, in short, is a situation where in the summer of 1988 Bob Lazar meets John Lear at his house there's a discussion that starts on UFOs Bob Lazar says he doesn't believe it John gives him a couple of things to check at Los Alamos where he used to work then apparently Mr. Lazar thinks John Lear may be right John asks him to phone teller who he had met in 1982 at Los Alamos to try to get a job up at the base in the middle of November 1988. Bob Lazar makes the phone call. And then in the first or the second interview, the first question is, what's your relationship with John Lear and what do you think about him? Which means that before Bob Lazar was put on the Area 51 site, the government knew that he was friends with John Lear, who was very popular and very controversial in the UFO field at the time. And they put him on the, the site, I believe, so that he would see certain material and carry it back to John Lear. John Lear would put the material out because he was so controversial most people would reject what John Lear was saying, and yet the story about back engineering flying saucers Area 51 would be heard by everybody. That was the intention, and that's exactly what appeared to happen. The first day Bob Lazar goes to the site at Area 51, S4, he is shown 121 documents which in a need-to-know program, I don't believe he would be shown. These were documents that described all different aspects of the program he was working on, aspects of the what they knew about UFOs, about aliens, about other programs that he would not have had any need to know about, about underground bases, alien shootouts at underground bases, all the basic same material that had been leaked in a documentary in 1988, a couple of weeks before Bob Lazar went to the site in a documentary that ran on national TV in the United States called UFOs, UFO Cover-Up Live. 
He sees the material. He sees the crafts. He immediately runs back to tell John Lear, even though he had been told that he would be monitored, that his phone would be monitored, even though they knew that John Lear's house was being monitored. He went and told John Lear everything that he'd seen. So he's passing the material back to John Lear. And as I point out in the first two episodes, Bob Lazar probably was not on the site, the S4 site, more than about six times. He had very limited access to what was going on at the site. And so because he was getting very little action in terms of work, he became frustrated, according to Gene Huff, who was one of the main friends of Bob Lazar at the time. And Gene Huff said that Bob had come to him and said, I want to show you something. And this comes to the where I ended part two last week, was that Bob Lazar took Gene Huff and uh, John Lear up to Area 51, outside the base to watch the testing of a flying saucer. The question is if Bob Lazar has only been on the base six times and he was in three months and he was basically a junior part-time employee, why would they tell him when the test was? He's not involved in the test. He's not involved in doing it. Why would they tell him when the test was? seems evident to me that they wanted him to take people and show them the test. And that's exactly what he did. So on March the 22nd, 1989, the first time that they went up to the, to the test site to watch the test, there was Bob Lazar, Bob's wife, Tracy, Gene Huff, and John Lear. Uh, they saw the object being tested and it did a bunch of bizarre maneuvers above the mountains. But they forgot to videotape with the camera that they had, a video camera. John Lear was watching the whole event through a telescope, and it lasted a number of minutes. And he could actually see the shape of the craft, and he said it appeared to be like a saucer. So being excited, the next Wednesday night, they went out again. That was March the 29th, 1989. But that time, John Lear was flying. I believe he was flying Lockheed 1011 to Minneapolis that night. So he wasn't there, but Bob Lazar was there. His wife, Tracy, was there. And that's part of the story you'll hear that Bob was very secret. He couldn't tell people what he was doing. He didn't tell his wife. His wife was at all three times they went to the test site to look at the test his wife was with him. So on the second night, his wife is there, Jean Huff, who's a very close friend and who was very involved in the discussion. There was a lot of discussion going on on the very early internet, the chat boards that were around at that time. Jean Huff was basically doing all the conversation defending Bob Lazar and the Air 51 story at that time. So he was there, but John Lear was not there. He was in Minneapolis on a flight. And that was the night they got the videotape. I'm not sure who did the videotaping, but they actually videotaped this object being tested above the mountains. And it was later shown on George Knapp's KLS TV. 
and it's still a very sort of famous UFO video. So John came back, and on the third Wednesday, Bob Lazar takes them all up to the site again to watch the test again. On the third night, there was Bob, Bob Lazar, his wife Tracy, Gene Huff, and on that night, Tracy's sister was there as well, and John Lear. And they were trying to get closer to the mountains to get film. And it was at that point that they were caught by the intelligence or the, the camo dudes, the security, Air 51 security. Just before they were overrun by the security, Bob Lazar had run off into the desert saying, I can't get caught, ran off in the desert with his gun. And after John Lear and the others sort of talked their way out of why they were there, they were star watching and stuff. And the security guards had told them that they better leave even though it was public land. They better go sky watch someplace else. They left. The security guys moved away. And everybody thought they had left, but they actually hadn't left. They were actually very, very close in the dark. And they were listening to the conversation. And that's when Bob Lazar comes back out of the desert and said, you know, I, 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 would have, I was ready. You know, he had his gun. I was, I was ready if, if they did anything. They got back in the, in the car. They drove back to the main road going back into Las Vegas. It was at that point they were stopped by the sheriff. And the sheriff was in contact back and forth as he was holding them with the security people. And it was at that point that they realized that there was now five people in the car instead of four. And the police officer asked him, why are there one more people, one more person in the car than there was before? They refused to answer the questions, but they had all the IDs. So it was that point now that the Area 51 security knew that Bob Lazar was one of the people that was there. The next morning, he is not taken to Area 51. He's contacted by his supervisor, Dennis, and they drive out to Indian Springs, north of Las Vegas. And it's there where a debriefing of Bob Lazar takes place. And it is there where they put a gun to his head and they basically say to him, when we told you this was a top secret test, it didn't mean to bring all your friends out to watch the test. And it's at that point that the threats actually start against Bob Lazar. And I will maintain as I do with every person who's sort of threatened in the UFO community that if they want you dead, you're dead in 29 minutes and they aren't going to miss. And if they're going to kill you, they're not going to give you a warning, which would indicate to me that if they are threatening Bob Lazar, it's not that they're going to kill him. It's that they want him to think they're going to kill him. They want him to run around and say, they're trying to kill me. They're trying to motivate him to tell his story, to talk, to run around and do all sorts of stuff. It's completely the opposite thing. So they threaten to kill him. They let him go, and this is one of the most important red flags of the whole Air 51 story. When they had him at that security debrief, they actually played a tape for him 
a conversation between his wife and his wife's um, teacher for uh, plane lessons. She was taking flying lessons. So it was her instructor. It was at that point they basically showed Bob Lazar that his wife was having an affair with his instructor. It was at that point they said to him, uh, we aren't going to pull your security clearance. We're just going to sus suspend your security clearance for a period of time. Now, this is the most highly classified base in the world. It's the most highly classified subject in the world. And this is a, a major red flag where a guy is leaking top secret material, bringing unauthorized people, giving them access to top secret information. He is not fired. His security clearance is not uh, pulled. And he's actually, according to an interview that Tim Good did with him in 1989, 1990, whenever he did the interview, Bob Lazar told Tim Good that he was actually invited back to the base. So if you're leaking top secret material when you should be in jail and be arrested, why would they invite him back to the base to work? And it would appear that they weren't finished feeding him material. They wanted to give him some more material. The idea was to give him material to spread material. And it was actually when he got the invite to go back to the base, to S4, to work again, it was Bob Lazar who actually said, no, I'm not coming. And according to the interview that, the account that Tim Good puts out, the guy who was on the phone with Bob Lazar said, are you officially refusing? And Bob Lazar said, yes. And that's how it ends. He's not fired. He actually does not go back to the base. They do not fire him. They want to give him some more material. Now, shortly after uh, the investigation started and it went public, uh, Bob Lazar releases his W-2 form, which basically he releases to verify the fact that he was on the base. And the W-2 form was put out by the United States Department of Navy, Naval Intelligence, which hadn't existed since World War II. But Bob Exler had actually done some work backtracking this agency and actually tracked the zip code, 20038, and had tracked this back and actually, it seemed to indicate that there was actually um, a classified operation there and that they had just used this name as a cover for the operation there. And as you remember in the past segments, Bob Lazar had definitely indicated that the people that he was working with were Navy, that this was a, a Navy operation at S4. The important part of the W-2 form from 1989, the entire um, income that Bob Lazar made from January, February, March, and the first week of April, 1989, totaled $958.11. So you always hear the stories that Bob was this full-time guy and he was at the base and he couldn't tell people and he couldn't tell his wife and he was doing all these testing and stuff. The W-2 form actually confirms 
Tim Good's version is that he only was there six times. If you are a full-time uh, senior scientist on this base, you're going to make more in three months than $958. $958 seems to indicate he was not there very much. And that's extremely important is the fact that he wasn't the employee that everybody thinks he was working on this stuff. He was, you know, he was slaving away, learning stuff. He was basically only there to see a test where they did a levitation of a, of a craft and he didn't fly the craft. They just levitated a couple of feet off the ground. He saw that he was shown these 121 documents that in a top secret, um, special access program, you're not going to show people all the different aspects, especially the second day or the first day you're there. You're not going to show them all the, how all this stuff works and about the aliens and about the underground base shootouts and uh, all the kind of same material that they were leaking on national TV a couple months before. This confirms that basically he was only there six times and it probably wasn't to really try to back engineer the saucer which would then put in question everything that he put out, even the stuff about the 115, the stuff about the craft. It's not that Bob Lazar was lying, but these were things that he was told. In six days, he would not have time to figure out how the craft worked or how, it was, how the propulsion system worked. It was stuff that he was being fed, which very well may not have been true. So it was $958.11 in three months and a week of work. And that's why it appears that he took people out to watch the test. He'd become frustrated by not being invited to work. He was not getting called. So after the April 7th debrief at Indian Springs, Bob is on suspension. And what happens is that John Lear is telling KLS-TV and George Knapp what's going on. He's basically told the story that there's this physicist up at Area 51. He does a show, a sort of a show that doesn't get many viewers that George Knapp had. And George described that when he put John Lear on that show, suddenly there was lots of people watching Lots of people phoning in. It got really big reaction. And so what happens, the whole Air 51 story turns in May of 1989. And this is what happened. People have the thing where Bob Lazar was being threatened and he was afraid and he went to save his life. He went to talk. That's not what happened. He really, except for the threat at Indian Springs, he really had not been threatened yet, according to what I understand. What happened was George Knapp had the five o'clock news, and every night they would have a live guest on the five o'clock news. He knew about Bob Lazar, he hadn't investigated the story. And so the one day one of the live guests had backed out. George Knapp was left without a a guest for the five o'clock news. So he phoned up John Lear and he said, you know, you got that guy you keep telling me, you're telling me about up at Area 51 that said he worked on the saucers. And John said, yep. He said, I'm missing a guest for tonight's show. 
let's put them on. I'll put them on. So what they do is they go to um, Bob Lazar's house. They backlight him so you can't see his face. They use the name Dennis. And they do the interview with Dennis. And Bob Lazar tells the story about being up at Area 51, but working on crafts. And it's at that point that the whole story goes viral. Within 48 hours, Nippon TV had picked up the story. And as George has told many times, as soon as they broadcast that story, it was as if every TV network in the world showed up in Las Vegas to ask questions, to go up into the, into the mountains, to look down on the base. And Israel comes back to this whole thing about, was this a government disinformation program? There's absolutely no way it would have. And if it was a disinformation program, they would have executed the guy who came up with the idea. Because you now had a situation where major networks have now caught on to the story. It's no longer John Lear with all sorts of controversial ideas carrying the story. Now you have a guy who would go on to win a couple dozen Emmy Awards, Peabody Awards, investigative journalist for KLS TV. Now it's George Knapp doing the story. It's not John Lear telling the story. And suddenly it's a respectable story and everybody thinks it's true. And so the idea that this was a disinformation program it's totally crazy because if it was a disinformation program, it really didn't go very well. Before 1989, nobody really knew Area 51 even existed. There was nobody knew S4 existed, and almost nobody knew that Area 51 existed, let alone the fact that they may have crash saucers at Area, at, at Area 51 or at S4. So you go from a base which nobody even knew was there, and nobody could care less, to suddenly everybody and their dog coming to Las Vegas, going up into the mountains, and watching all the operations of the most top secret base in the world. People are up there with cameras, telescopes. You could actually see the base from the position in the mountains they were. There was a radio broadcaster who I talked to, his name is Billy Goodman who had viral audiences every night as he covered this story. And Billy Goodman would actually hire buses on the weekend to go from Las Vegas up into the mountains to look down on Area 51 and watch all the stuff flying around coming in and out of the base. And so the story had gone really, really bad. And it was at that point, I say that the officials at Area 51 had realized the story had gotten out of control and they would now have to rein the story back in. They would have to get back control of the story. They would have to get people away from the site. And so what they did with the site was in 1994, they actually had an order from President Bill Clinton to take away thousands of acres to move the people back so they couldn't, they couldn't go onto public land up in the mountains and look down on the base. 
they moved them farther away so they could not see the base. They were on a, on a different mountain and much, many, many miles farther back. And they would grab camera stuff from people going up into the mountains. And they had to try to stop this whole viral thing where suddenly it was the most well-known base in the world and everybody was coming there to see it. And it was at that point that I say that the vast majority of the threat started. Because once the network started to show up, all the people that were involved with the story all thought, okay, now it's time. I can go and talk about it. And what most people don't really realize is that George Knapp had 24 other witnesses. When the story sort of got viral and respectable, a bunch of people started to come to George Knapp with bits and pieces of the story that Bob Lazar was telling. Now, there was nobody with directly the same story, but according to George Knapp, these people were confirming basically bits and pieces of Bob Lazar's story. And it was at that point that these people started to get threatened. And it was at that point where they were going into Bob Lazar's house, breaking in, and they were writing stuff on the blackboard, threatening phone calls. And it was at these point, at this point where the car gets shot at, they pull the Uzi out of his, his glove compartment and leave it on the front seat of the car. They do things to rattle him, to, to, slow, to slow this story down, to try to back people off. And George tells a story about the six witnesses, back to back to back to back to back, all these witnesses that came, six witnesses in a row, who had various parts of the story. One had done tax reports for um, some of the, the uh, high-ranking officers at Nellis Air Force Base, had heard stories. Um, this guy um, was, was backed away. He was suddenly said, he decided he, he wasn't gonna tell the story just before he went on camera. There was a steno who had been involved with a contractor uh, dealing with material there. She was going to talk and they showed up to her and reminded her she had a security clearance and that she, they knew she went to visit her daughter in Los Angeles and that he had to have something happen in the desert. And George even said that years later he went back to that woman and she was still so scared she wouldn't even talk to him years later. So these six witnesses all backed out. They were about to go on camera and they all got backed off by various types of threats. And George was very upset because he suddenly realized that he himself was now being watched, that they had tapped his phone and they knew what he was doing and they knew the people that were trying to validate the story and they were trying to stop these people from validating the story. And there was a bunch of people that people may not know about who were actually involved in this one was, I think was Congressman Bilbray, who George Knapp brought into the story to try to verify Bob Lazar's background. And Bilbray's office had stated that something very strange was going on, that usually if you put in a request, you could get certain things, but the, the reaction they were getting from all the government officials that they were trying to get this material from indicated that there was something very strange that they had sort of hit a nerve 
and they were not able to get anything, which they found very unusual. The other person was involved that some people really are not that aware of was Harry Reid. Senator Harry Reid was involved. And I think it was George Knapp who said that was the first first person he told about the Area 51 thing when he got it was Senator Reid. And Senator Reid has actually investigated the case. And we don't know what he discovered, but he would have had an advantage over George Knapp, over private investigators like myself or other people. He would have had lots of inside government contacts. He was a senator from Nevada. He would have the ability to ask questions inside Air 51 or about Air 51. And he believed Bob Lazar, which is a very, very big statement that the state senator had investigated and believed that Bob Lazar had actually been there. Now, we don't know what he discovered. He's never really talked about what he discovered. And then there was one other investigation that, that took place that some people may not know about. And this deals with the Senate Appropriations Committee. When the Air 51 story broke, the Appropriations Committee is the committee in the Senate that hands out the government for the government money. And the head of the Senate Appropriations Committee at the time was Senator Robert Byrd. And Byrd was very interested in UFOs. So when the Area 51 story broke and became viral, Byrd, like anybody else, could read the newspapers. And as the rumor goes, Byrd was curious. And he asked the other people on the Appropriations Committee, are we funding UFOs? Or are we doing UFO back engineering at Area 51? And nobody really had any answer. No, we don't know. And he said, well, if we're doing back engineering of flying saucers at Area 51, we don't know what the hell's going on, and we should be the guys who know what's going on. And so in order to try to get this under control to find out why they didn't know it was going on, even though they, if it was going on, they were providing the money. Bird hires a, a lawyer by the name of Dick D'Amato. And Dick D'Amato worked in security, National Security Agency, stuff like that. And he was uh, an investigator at the time with the Senate Appropriations Committee. And so D'Amato was given the job of trying to validate the Area 51 story. Do we really have these flying saucers? And there was a number of researchers who were contacted. The motto basically went to everybody. He went to Stan, Stanton Friedman. He went to Timothy Good. Went to George Knapp. Went to Gene Huff. Went to John Lear. He basically went to everybody. And then he went to the base. And to make a long story short, um, he returns and he has a meeting with um, Jesse Marcel Jr. And he goes to Jesse and he says, Jesse, I want to talk to you about Roswald. Jesse told this story at the, Senate, the, the Citizens Hearing in 2013 that was run by Steve Bassett, where 40 witnesses went and presented the best UFO evidence that we have 
in front of six former congressmen and senators. I had asked to tell the story. I had put a message through to Jesse whether I could tell the story. And instead, Jesse went and told the story himself. And what the story was was this, that he had been contacted by D'Amato, who had actually um, investigated the whole Air 51 story. And when D'Amato talked to Jesse, he said, I want to talk to you about Roswald. And Jesse said, well, you know, there's not much I, you know, I, I really got nothing to say. I mean, everything I've said about Roswald, I've said it. I really can't add anything to what I've said. And that's when D'Amato said, well, maybe I'd like to tell you something. And so Jesse said, okay. And according to Jesse, the testimony he gave in front of this hearing, Dick D'Amato took him to the Senate building, to a sub-basement in the Senate building. And there was a giant conference room there behind secure locks, high security area. And he said it had a picture of the founding fathers on there. And it was this massive conference room. And they sat at the table. And on the corner between them, on the corner of the table between them, there was the book called Majestic Whitten. It was a novel by Whitley Strieber. And Whitley had written this story based upon talking to his uncle, who was a military guy, and that he'd gotten the confirmation of MJ-12, the supposed control group that ran the UFO situation. And Whitley had been told, basically, the MJ-12 thing was for real, that there was this group there was a crash at Roswell, New Mexico. It had been moved to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and that this was this very secure operation that had taken place. So this book was called Majestic and basically it was a story about how the MJ-12, about the control group, how they had managed the Roswell crash. So this book, Majestic, was sitting on the table between Dick D'Amato and Jesse Marcel. And according to Jesse, Dick D'Amato tapped the book. And he said, I just want to let you know, this ain't fiction. This is for real. And Jesse said, I know that. So when are you going to tell the people? And Dick D'Amato said, well, it was up to me. I would have told them yesterday. But it's not up to me. I'm just here to determine what the security for the program is costing. And he said, I just want to let you know that there's a deep, dark arm of the government that's unelected, that controls all the money and controls all the hardware. I just want to let you know that. So that was, the investigation was done by Dick D'Amato. Now I know that a number of people have uh, not, not, a couple of people have actually gone to Dick D'Amato recently to try to get him to validate the story. What did he discover there? And D'Amato has not completely turned it down, but he basically has not answered anybody's questions about what happened.
The final witness is the the big witness of the Area 51 um, story, and that was a, a witness that George Knapp has talked about probably a number of times, but at least one that, that I know of. Um, it was mentioned on a mid-1990 radio interview with Don Ecker, where George Knapp sort of hints at the fact that he's working on this story with this witness. And he tells the story to Paracast podcast. And he also tells the story at a lecture that he gave at the nuclear museum in Las Vegas. And the story is this. He had 24 witnesses. He had these various people that were coming to him with bits and pieces of the story. And he'd seen the lie detector tests and he questioned Bob Lazar repeatedly and was coming to the conclusion he was pretty sure that Bob had been on, on the base. But he needed something more. And he came across a guy who was one of the top EG&G officials who had wired atomic bombs in the 1940s. He'd been there right through the whole thing. And Georgia determined that if Bob Lazar's story was true, and if they did have crash saucer material at Area 51, this guy would know. So what he did, according to the story, is he spent six months getting to know this guy. He'd go to events, introduce himself, and after about six months, he got to know this guy well enough that the guy invited him to come to his house. So he went to the guy's house and he had this big book full of photographs of bomb craters from the atomic tests of the 1940s and early 50s. And he's flipping through this book through these various photographs and George was watching and then the guy said, well, Closed the book and he said, you didn't come here to look at bomb craters, did you? And George said, no, not really. And he said, I know what you came to talk about. I know what you want to talk about. You want to talk about UFOs, don't you? And George said, yeah, I think I'd rather talk about that. And the guy's wife said, no, don't start telling those stories. And George said he started telling the stories. And it was all real, according to George. This guy started to open up. And George said he met with this guy at a restaurant repeatedly for six months. And he was not allowed to tape. He was not allowed to take notes. And the guy would tell him various pieces of the story. And George would immediately try to write down as much as he could when he left the restaurant as to what this guy told him. This went on for six months. And it turned out that George identified that this engineer turned out to be the same engineer that in the book Area 51 by Annie Jacobson, she uses this engineer as a source to state that the Roswell crash was sort of a counterintelligence operation by the Russians and the Germans to crash a genetically modified teenager or something at Roswell to scare the Americans. 
And looking back, George said it was the same guy, but when I was talking to him, there was no Russians, there was no Germans. It was all straight ET stuff. And the guy had said, yes, it's true. We've got the, the crafts. And George said, well, weren't you afraid it was the story would get out? And he said, no, we're, we weren't afraid of that. We were afraid it was going to get out. And George said, you mean there actually was a live alien? And the guy responded, well, we couldn't communicate with it. And then George said, well, you came across the galaxy. This thing came across the galaxy and you kept it captive. And the guy said, we couldn't communicate with it. And when the D'Amato thing started, this guy backed off and said that he couldn't talk anymore. And the way the story ends is that George makes a deal with this guy that the guy's to make a tape and that when he dies, his son, who is an FBI agent who was actually at the, the one meeting, uh, would release the tape. And um, the last thing of the story was that um, George was told that the tape had been made. So that was the main witness that sort of convinced George that this was all very much for real. The other interesting thing that happened about the time when this Area 51 thing was breaking um, was the fact that Bob Bigelow got involved. And some people said, I never, I'm not 100% sure of this, but it may be true that this may have been when Bob got involved with UFOs. This is 1989. And what had happened is in November of 1989, um, there had been a whole series of interviews as this thing picked up. On November the 10th, there was the big interview um, that had been done along series that had been done by KLS TV on the 24th, Robert Lazar and John Lear uh, show up on the Billy Goodman show. And that got a lot of people listening and they basically spelled out what had happened. Um, on November 25th, uh, KLS TV does a two hour special, which was one of the biggest productions they'd ever done. Huge numbers of people watching uh, on December 9th, Robert Lazar goes on the record with uh, George Knapp. This is a TV show that George Knapp had. And then on the 20th of December, Robert Lazar goes on the Billy Goodman show. So this story had gotten very, very viral. And Bob Bigelow steps in. And there's not much known about this story except we have the paperwork. Um, it's an application for um, a company. And Bob Lazar sets up a company with um, Bob Bigelow and it's called Zeta Reticuli 2 Incorporated and it's formed and uh, it's kind of weird that the the um, the actual paperwork the the actual form was S4 SS4 or double S4 and this company I think ran for a year and because Bob is interested in sort of the technology stuff Apparently, this had to do with the 115, but that's basically all we know is that there was a company set up between Bob Bigelow and Robert Lazar, ran for about a year, and then ended. 
Um, now, as the story started to unfold, Bob was and George were going through all the efforts to try to validate Bob Lazar's story. And there was a um, lie detector test that was done by Ron Slay. And he had done two lie detector tests, and one came up inconclusive. And it was at that point that I believe it was um, George Knapp brought in Jerry, Derry, uh, Terry Tavanetti, uh, who I think still does polygraph tests for the casinos in Las Vegas. And he was brought in, he did four lie detector tests, and apparently Bob Lazar passed all of them with flying colors. There was no doubt that he was telling the truth. And I would agree that if you look at all the witnesses there, everybody was telling the truth. Uh, Bob Lazar passed the lie detector. I would have said John Lear would have passed the lie detector. Gene Huff would have passed the lie detector. Uh, George Knapp would have passed the lie detector. It's the Air 51 story is a, the problem is with the interpretation um, of what actually happened. I don't think the, the, the things that happened are in doubt, but what do they mean? What does it mean when Bob Lazar doesn't get fired? What does it mean when they ask him about John Lear in the interview? Uh, what does it mean when they put him on the, on the site only six times or they show him a bunch of documents? Uh, all that stuff did happen, but it has deeper meanings. And this is where this idea of the red flags come from. It has a deep meaning as to why did they take him on the site? Why did they show him all this stuff? And what does it all mean in terms of what were they actually doing? Now, so he does these lie detector tests. And um, I talked to, at the time I was investigating, I was actually talking to other people. So I talked to Lane Keck. So um, Bob Lazar had actually gone for hypnosis, which actually validates his story even more. Because if you are going to make up something, you're not really going to volunteer to go under hypnosis. And Lane Keck told me his subconscious mind believes totally all the things that he was saying. So he basically believed based on his hypnosis session that whatever the story was that Bob was telling, uh, he believed the story. The Area 51 story continued on. Numerous media from all over the place came and continued to gather information on the story. And the U.S. Air Force had a situation where they had created a situation where they had to get the story back under control. That started in October of 1993, and the U.S. Air Force filed a notice to the Federal Registry uh, seeking to take another 3,972 acres from public view to hamper views of Area 51 or the, the base from Freedom Ridge and Whitesides Peak. Then in 1995, Bill Clinton signed a presidential determination, number 95-45, which stated in part, I find that it is in the paramount interest of the United States to exempt the United States Air Force operating location near Groom Lake, Nevada from any applicable requirement for disclosure to unauthorized persons of classified information concerning that operating location. 
later, Barack Obama would come out and actually change it from operating location to confirming that it was called Area 51. So to sort of sum up the Area 51 story, my impression and a number of other people have gotten the same impression that what the Area 51 story may have been was just a way to sort of throw out the UFO subject, the fact that we do have crashed material and possibly a live alien, to put it out to the public almost like a test market, like a McDonald's test market, and use Area 51 in Las Vegas as the testing area just to see how it went out. And what happened was it sort of, in some ways, backfired, but they were able to get the story back under control. And now we're back to a situation where the government has not disclosed, they have not done a full disclosure of what happens at Area 51, but they did not cover up. They basically leaked the material to the public. And so they've done the same thing as they've always done, is do something in between. They're sort of disclosing, not disclosing, putting the material out, plausible deniability. You can pull the story back anytime you want. And it's basically a replay of previous events that have happened in the past. The Area 51 story was only one of many similar stories that occurred. We go back to the Holloman Air Force Base leak that occurred during UFO cover-up or UFO past, present, and future, that a documentary that was put out by uh, Bob Emmenegger and, and Alan Sandler in 1975, in which they um, revealed that the U.S. Air Force may have landed a UFO at Holloman Air Force Base, and that the entire event, including an interaction between of officials from the base and beings that came out of the craft was all filmed from four different camera locations. That was one story that was put out. Then we go to uh, the 1980s when the story of MJ-12, uh, a control group that ran the UFO program from the very beginning, controlled all the most highly classified material, uh, was put out through Bob Pratt at the National Enquirer, uh, Bill Moore, Jamie Chandray, Stanton Friedman, all these people were sort of leaked material. And like the Area 51 story, that material was put out, um, but it had plausible deniability. It's pretty sure that the document that was leaked, the main MJ-12 document, had been altered, it had been changed, it was not the original document, therefore they could say this was a hoax document. And that was the plausible liability to pull the whole story back. I think in the short uh, near future, we will see um, some pretty strong confirmation, the fact that MJ-12 was actually for real, and also a confirmation of the fact that we do have crash saucer material. Uh, but that will come when it comes. It won't be too far off. Um, so the, you have the basically the Roswell story, which came with uh, Bill Moore, which is why Bill Moore was contacted, um, because uh, part of the operation, the MJ-12 operation, was to, in some ways, discredit the research that Bill Moore was doing on Roswell by giving him a document that he would leak, which would be shown to be... Um, 
phony, the same as uh, Bob Lazar was discredited when it sort of became known that um, he may not have had the, 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 the background, the educational background that he claimed. So you went through that whole 1980s operation. And in the 1990s, you had the operation where um, Bob and Ryan Wood would handle 3,700 pages of what was called the new Majestic Documents, uh, material that had been leaked from about four or five different sources, um, through FOIAs, through these sort of things. And it was the same story. It was um, a lot of information was very interesting, uh, but it all had plausible deniability. It was very hard to confirm that the material that they had was, was real. And then we go up to um, the, the present situation with the Tom DeLong um, situation where Tom DeLong, sort of a, um, a rock star who has, um, is running a conspiracy website, um, who is known to be sort of uh, a little bit radical in some of the songs he sang, this sort of stuff where he becomes very interested in the UFO phenomena through his interactions with Stephen Greer. Uh, he sort of makes known the fact that he's, he's looking at this stuff. He has some of Stephen Greer's material and he gets approached by um, uh, military people, by black ops, by Lockheed Skunk Works and like Bill Moore, uh, like Bob Lazar, uh, like Bob Emenager, you have a situation where he is st starts to get material fed to him from um, secret sources inside the government. But like all the other stories in the past, he is um, not really able to confirm this. Uh, there's some videos leaked through uh, his uh, involvement, three videos. New York Times, Washington Post, Politico get involved. Uh, it is, becomes known that there was a program called ATIP that was uh, put out there. And yet when it came down to trying to verify it, like the Area 51 story, like the Holloman Air Force Base, like the Area Majestic 12, the story basically fell apart. The government said, uh, we don't have any documents, or we can't find any material, and we did not release the videos. So this is the kind of material and the kind of operation. You have people inside the government who want the material out, and they make a move, and they are allowed to do it as long as the story comes out slowly. To end, let me quickly mention that um, I'm working on a presentation now, which I've been working on for a couple of months, which is an extremely important presentation. I'll be presenting it at the Consciousness Life Expo, February the 23rd in Los Angeles, and it has to do with contact modalities. Um, you'll see some of the recent To the Stars, um, this story that is linked to them with... Uh, Gary Nolan and uh, Kit Green dealing with experiencers and they're talking about uh, how people make contact, the brain patterns, uh, possible genetic connection. Um, I will go through 72, very quickly, 72 contact modalities and how I think all this stuff links together. So that's it. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Cameron Files with Grant Cameron. Any rebroadcast or duplication of this program or program content without express written permission from Grant Cameron himself 
or the KGRADB is strictly prohibited. The Cameron Files, in direct cooperation with the internet website beyondpresidentialufo.com. That's this week's episode of the Paranormal UFO Consciousness Podcast. I'm your host, Grant Cameron, hoping that you will join me for upcoming episodes. Links to my YouTube interviews, books, and my Facebook sites are in the show notes. If you love the podcast or learn something valuable, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, or give a review on today's episode. If you would like a certain paranormal subject dealt with in the future, please let us know. Until next time, watch this space, and thank you so much for listening.